Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. We thank you for your love and we pray this morning that you will um, speak to us. And as David prayed earlier, pray that everyone will not see the uh, speaker, the preacher, but they will see and hear you. And whatever you intend for us to hear, we pray that it will go straight to our hearts and we will be a people who have got open ears, who have got open hearts and open minds willing to hear you, to accept you and to love you. We pray. Amen. Okay, before I, uh, I'm putting it off just a little bit further, Dwayne, okay, before we, we go on to that, I wonder if we can open our Bibles to the Old Testament and to Isaiah chapter 6. That's Isaiah chapter 6. And we will also read part of chapter 7. And I will jump around in chapter 7 for two reasons. One is because it's quite a long reading. And number two, I am slightly dyslexic, and there are some names in there that I don't wish to get tongue-tied over this morning, so I'm going to cheat and get on to the bits where the names are admitted. So I pray that you will um, bear with me with that one. Okay, so this passage in Isaiah, in fact both passages are, are extremely well known, and there is a great kind of parallel, but certainly with chapter 6, with Revelation. And it's a wonderful image of Isaiah being taken up into the heavenly host and seeing um, God and the holy host. And we'll read it. It is a wonderful, vibrant piece, but one also that reminds us of our position before him. In the year of King Isaiah's diet, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me! I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, May their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they may see with their ears and hear with their sorry, see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, "For how long, Lord?" And he answered, "Until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, 
until the Lord has sent away everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the turban and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, to the holy seed will the stump in the land. When Isaiah, the son of Jothan, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, king of Razim of Aram, and Perah, the son of king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied himself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Isaiah and the people were shaken as the trees of the forest were shaken by the wind. And I'll move forward a bit. And this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, nor it won't happen. For the head of Aram of Damascus and the head of Damascus is only Razim. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is in Syria, and the head of Samaria is also Ramallah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether it in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Isaiah said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. Now, I have a feeling that Ben will spend a bit of time on that verse later. Um, but I didn't know that Ben was going to be looking at that verse later, and God laid that verse and the parable on my heart um, earlier this week. So I think God has got a message for us. Now let's go back to, we'll break the sermon into two halves. So we'll deal with the New Testament first and then we'll move on to the second one and you'll see that there is a, is a parallel between the two. Now you might not be able to see it yet, but hopefully by the end you will. Uh, it's a difficult parable, yes, to um, tackle. Hence, uh, like a coward that I am, it's the last one I think in the series, although there is a few more that we may well cover still. In the NIV, it's entitled, I don't know if you've got the NIV, it's entitled The Shrewd Manager. In the King James Version, it's the parable of the unjust steward. And the message doesn't hold back by calling it the story of the crooked manager. And now, a parable about someone who's not an ideal role model isn't unusual, is it? After all, we have the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, uh, which I haven't covered, uh, the rich fool, the wise and the foolish builders, the unforgiving servant, and the unjust judge, and there are more. But with all of these, there is absolutely a significant difference. And as such, I was reluctant to deal with this passage. See, taking parables too far, or by examining them in a way not intended, can distract from the thrust of the message that Jesus um, delivered. For example, what was the shepherd thinking of when he leaves 99 sheep behind and goes off to seek the one lost sheep? 
Or how did the poor elder son feel when the wastrel of a brother returns after disappearing off with an inheritance that wasn't his to take and squandering it on a terrible lifestyle whilst he remained at home, hard-working, loving and loyal to his father? Day by day, he had seen the suffering inflicted upon his poor father by the prodigal son who cared nothing for the pain and suffering that his father was going through, only now to feel second class and overlooked by his father's reaction to the returning prodigal son. But of course, that is not the focus of the parable, is it? And therefore, ultimately, it's not worthy of our consideration. The point of the story, the prodigal son, is to show the compassion, grace and mercy of the father unmerited, absolute and immeasurable. This is the point of the three parables that focus upon the lost things. This parable follows the series of the lost things immediately afterwards. And the diligent seeker of these things, i.e. God, the comparison therefore is clear. Here we see the God the Father that has a heart to seek the lost things and the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, have a different, i.e. the religious leaders of the day, take what for their own what is really God's and have no regard whatsoever for the lost things. The comparison then is almost vulgar. The behaviours of the shrewd manager or the unjust steward or the crooked manager is in stark comparison with a loving and compassionate God. In fact, in a way, the story is going okay until we reach verse 8. And verse 8 reads, and this is the one that gives me the challenge and gives many, um, many people the challenge. The master uh, commended, not condemned, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So in the face of it, this verse presents us with a challenge. We know that God cannot look upon sin. He hates injustice and condemns theft. In fact, if you, if you don't think he does, well, I'm not sure you, that you do, but look at the Ten Commandments. Coming in at number eight is this little gem, you shall not steal. Therefore, I'm uneasy with this character. But these possessions and these debts are not his. The olive oil, the wheat, and ultimately belong to the rich man, the master. The 5,000 litres of oil, the six tons of wheat are owned owed to the master. And yet here we see the manager using his time-limited position to curry favour with other people by using what doesn't belong to him. He knows that very shortly he will no longer enjoy the employment of the master and therefore he needs to be welcomed into the homes of the people around him. He has little time left and the judgment is quickly coming. 
One where he will be account, held account for his actions for the things that he did and the things that he didn't do. So in verse 2, he was told, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. Therefore we can see that the promise of judgment is laid before them all in this parable. A time is coming when an account will be taken. I don't know about you, but I looked at this parable and I was glad that this man bears no resemblance whatsoever to me or to my actions. Am I correct? I would argue that no, in fact, I'm not correct and that I am in exactly the same position. Why? Because all I have is a gift from God. I have a nice house, I have a nice car, I've had a career, I've got two amazing daughters, one who's going to blush at the back, I've got a wonderful wife, I've got material possessions. But none of it is ultimately mine. But they are merely a temporary loan given to me by God to be a steward of and to use for his glory. What I do with it is crucial. How do we carry favour with men and women to do God's service? And what do we use so that we can be the light, God's light, to this world? What has God given you that should be used for his glory? What things are you withholding from him that you should be happily giving to him? Because at the end of the day, he gave it to you in the first place. That isn't to say that we can't enjoy this life. So I am not saying that we should give everything back and not enjoying some. The Bible, many places, tells us that we can enjoy what God has given us, that we can celebrate what God has given to us. But this should not be our only goal, and we should not jealously look at them and use them and cherish them, but be thankful for the Father that has given them to us. We need to shine the light back to God, from God, to into this world, by being the difference that he has saved us to. Jesus in this parable is pointing his hearers to the fact that there was a judgment coming swiftly upon them, the Jews, with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. In August 70 AD, probably about 35 years to 40 years after Jesus uttered these words, Roman legions under Titus retook and destroyed much of Jerusalem and pulled down the temple. The, uh, Israel, the, the Jews had rebelled against the Roman um, authorities for four years and the Romans had had enough and that was the end of it. And you can go to Jerusalem today and you can see the walls of an unbuilt, destroyed temple that was destroyed nearly 2,000 years ago. So Jesus was warning them of a coming judgment and the need to turn away from their lives, their love of money and power and self-wealth and everything that they had been given and to use it for his glory. Without doubt, the disciples heeded his words. And the message, I, I don't often go to the message as a great place for um, biblical um, 
um, insight. Every now and then, I think the message actually kind of deals with things quite well and kind of strips away the language and gives it to you kind of um, very straightforward. And I'll read um, this passage to you now. It says, Now here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way. But for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you, to create survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behaviour. And that is the main thrust. A second passage today delves back into the Old Testament but the message is clear and it is consistent with this passage. The last Sunday we sat um, for our third consecutive um, Sunday under a ministry um, from the church that we are spending a bit of time now because obviously we've got a property uh, in Norfolk. And we were looking at Ecclesiastes and we also then dipped into Isaiah chapter 6. We didn't do chapter 7, um, but we did look at chapter 6. And it was a challenging word, one for us to take stock of what we are doing and to remember and to rejoice what God has done for us and the provisions that he's provided to us. And he kept using the phrase, none of us know how late it is. And the preacher repeated it again, none of us know how late it is. Now, when you're um, in your 60th year, you, you begin to realise, don't you, that, that it is getting late. But when you're in your teens and when you're in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, it doesn't feel late, does it? But the answer is, none of us know how late it is in God's clock. We have no idea when God, when Christ will return. And it's a sombre and sober thought and worthy of our consideration. Today, David covered it in, in the prayer. Today, we live in a world that there are wars almost everywhere. There's a terrible war going on in Israel. There's a terrible war that's dragging on into its, what, second year now in Ukraine. The, the war in Israel is significant in as far as who is being pulled into this war and where it is heading and the ferocity of that attack. And I'm not going to say whether the, the Israelis are right or wrong. It's, it's irrelevant. And the fact of the matter is that there are many things that look like last days in that what is happening there. But whether it is or isn't, it is a place where we need to pray rightly for, not for victory, but for peace. That God will have the glory and that God will bring peace to men's hearts and that people will turn from their desire for vengeance and just know where they stand on both sides. People are dying on both sides. And I don't know how that makes you feel. I, I guess I do. I think you probably feel helpless, lost, confused, angry, numb, scared maybe, maybe in need of comfort. Well, the one thing we know is where comfort comes from. We've been provided the comforter. And here in chapter 6, 
we see this wonderful passage where Isaiah is transported and sees the glory of God in heaven. And he's aware of his uncleanness and he cries out, I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Now here, here he is before Lord God Almighty. And once his guilt is taken away, his, tins are, his sins are atoned for, he is now bold. So when God says, whom shall I send? Isaiah volunteers himself. And imagine Isaiah's joy when God says to him, go tell this people. So a few moments before, he was a terrible man, full of sin. His sins have been taken away. And now he has an opportunity to take God's word to the people. I wonder if his heart sunk when he heard the words that he had to deliver. I'll read them for you. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, may their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, Lord? And he answered, until the city's light ruined and without inhabitant, until the, field, the houses are deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. Though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid to waste. But the timbreth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, and so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. I mean, look at those words. Never understanding, never perceiving, callous, ears dull, closed eyes, cities lie ruined, houses left deserted, ruined, ravaged, the Lord has sent everyone away, again to be laid waste. In all of that judgment, and it is a judgment that was coming to them for what they had done, but God just suddenly decided that he was going to inflict this judgment upon them, or was there a reason behind it? The reason was that they turned their back upon God. They no longer served him, but they worshipped other idols. They no longer put God central, but they chased after what the world held dear. But this passage is a beautiful passage, because the promise lies in that final verse. So the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So what's he talking about here? The answer is found in the next chapter. And the next chapter is a really interesting one. I, it, I, I kind of ruined it a bit by breaking it up, and I apologise for that. But do take it away and do look at chapter 7. Look at all of it, but certainly look at it from verses 1 to verse 14. The first part is a prelude to a coming war, a judgment upon the kingdom of Judah. The Israelites of Moses' time and that of the judges and King David has now been split into two kingdoms, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And the smaller of these, the house of Judah, has two tribes, and that's Judah and Benjamin. And the Armenians, which are mentioned in there, are the people that are today would be in modern-day Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. And these two 
had formed some strange alliance, not a God-honoring one, but they had come together. And Judah had laid itself basically with the world and aligned itself with the world and had sided ultimately with the Assyrians. The king is told not to be afraid because he is on the Lord's side and the Lord will bring an end to their rebellion and within 65 years of the surprisingly uprising of Israel against Judah, 65 years, Ephraim would be shattered. And if you know your Bible history, it was shattered and is no more. And God uses incredible language here describing Aram and Israel. These two smouldering stumps of firewood... You see, looking at the passage in itself, you look at um, what Isaiah says, and let's um, just look at it for a second. Um, he says here, again, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, asked the Lord for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Isaiah said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to test. Then Isaiah says, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Now, when I read that, the first time I read that, I was a bit affronted by that because it looks like Isaiah's been given an opportunity to speak and in humility or humbleness, he, he says, I can't ask, I cannot put the law to test. So in a way, you look at him and you think, oh, wow, this guy is behaving as I might. But, but what you're not understanding is who Isaiah is. And it doesn't really show it here. You need to go back into 2 Kings 16. And in 2 Kings 16, you find out that he was one of the most evil kings that Judah had ever had. Unlike King David, he didn't worship God. He worshipped the idols and the people around. It even says... And children, close your ears for a second, that he actually sacrificed his own son to them. He stripped the temple of its gold and silver and gave it to the Assyrians to come and to fight for him. And then later on, he goes into the temple and he tears down canopies and he tears down panels and he strips the temple. This is what God's angry about. This is why Isaiah has got this message of a coming judgment coming to him. See, God sees clearly, and he sees issues, and he sees people. You know, when our troubles seem incredibly high, they seem like mountains, and they seem more threatening than the storm and the sea, remember, we have a God that calms waves, removes mountains, if we trust him. And also, he does it many times when we don't. This is grace. There are two key passages in this verse that we need, or two verses that we need in these passages that we need to look at. Verse 9 is the first one. If you do not stand firm in your own faith, you will not stand at all. Or reverse this, if you stand firm in your faith, you will stand. Isaiah had a choice. Trust God against the odds and see victory, or lose your faith, wobble, take your eyes off God, and you won't. 
Isaiah's faith was too small. In fact, I would argue that Isaiah had no faith. And therefore, faced with a challenge in front of him, he tries the patience of God, even though he has an opportunity to come back to God. And therefore, the result is that God will have his judgment upon him. See, what God gives, God can take away. And if you stand firm in your faith, then God will continue to be with you. And it was true for the house of Judah, and it's a good principle for us now. It's easy to have faith when the going is good, but when the storms rage, it is absolutely essential. The final verse for this morning is very deep in the dialogue of the of the pending judgment, and that's verse 14, which obviously heralds the start of Advent and moving towards uh, Christmas. And I, and, I, and I will get in with the, what I think is going to be the first carol that we've had very shortly. So here we are in, in November using a really thin excuse to do so. In verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. A promise which was destined to change the world and to enable you and I, like Isaiah earlier, with the coal, to be accepted by God. Question to the children that are still with me. Um, what does the name Emmanuel mean? Do we know? Yes. God? Yes. Yeah, God with us. Amen. Here in this pretty terrible passage is the promise of Jesus, the saviour of the world. He is prophesied here. He was to be born of a virgin, as we know, Mary, and he entered the world in human form. Here we see in the middle of this judgment, and it is a terrible judgment, the judgment upon these people was that they were going to be ransacked, they were going to be taken away, and they were going to become slaves in a land not their own for many generations. And what was left behind, the fields that were so rich, the vineyards that gave so much, were going to be left desolate, rocky and barren. Something which I'm sure they couldn't even conceive as being possible. But when God says something's going to happen, you can count on it, it will. So here is this wonderful promise of a coming Messiah, the King of Kings, and after all of the time of judgment, when the people turned back to him, Christ was to come. The King of Kings, a time of mercy, forgiveness and, as we prayed earlier, a God of healing. God in his time revealing his plan for all mankind. Jesus was to become the sacrifice which only God could make to remove the sins of those who call upon his name, who confess their sins, their need of him, and let him and him only deal with them once and for all. See, Jesus came to establish a new kingdom and a new order. Faith in Jesus is the good times, the hard times, the difficult days, the days when confusion surrounds and the days when the sun shines again.
God is the same today, tomorrow, as he ever was. He should be and has to be our firm foundation. He is and must be our rock. He gives all that we have. He gives us all that we are. And therefore we should give him our absolute best as he gave his absolute best for all of us. So, slowly we reach Christmas time. We can ensure that this time, please let us ensure that this time, that the hope that we have in our heart is where God is and his mighty deeds are a reason and the only reason, ultimately, why we celebrate this coming season. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your own, then don't leave that baby in the manger. Don't leave Jesus hanging on a cross or dead in a tomb, because that isn't where he stayed. He rose triumphant over death, and he took the punishment for each one of us, for all of the things that we cannot put right. We can try, but we can't. And it's simple. Just give it to him. Tell him you've done wrong, ask him to forgive you, give your life over, and then live new lives. Everything that you have, everything that you are, is because God gave it to you. So for his glory, let's live our lives for him.